Welcome to Mountain Talk. I'm your host, Rachel Geringer. In honor of Black History Month, every Monday in February, we're celebrating Black histories, current realities, and futures in the Appalachian region and beyond. We continue this month-long series with the story of a young African-American man struggling to stay in Lynch, Kentucky, where he was raised. WMMT's Benny Becker followed Derek Akal, a 21-year-old former athlete, in an intimate exploration of the challenges facing young Appalachians, and particularly young Black Appalachians, who navigate a historical relationship to migration into and out of the coalfields of eastern Kentucky in search of work and justice. These stories originally aired in a four-part series for Inside Appalachia's Struggle to Stay, which followed six Appalachians navigating the challenges of staying or leaving the mountains of their home. We'll begin with the first three chapters of Derek Akal's story. Then, we'll hear an excerpt from a 2016 interview with Derek's cousin, Carita Brown, who is a professor of sociology at the University of California in Los Angeles. She conducts a public humanities project called the Eastern Kentucky African-American Migration Project. We'll end with the conclusion to Derek Akal's story. What would be the first thing you'd want someone to understand as they're hearing your story? You know, it's okay, you know, if you want to stay. It's also okay if you want to leave, too. But if you're going to leave, then always have more than three plans. Plan A, Plan B, Plan C, you got to have a, do the whole alphabet. That's Derek Akal, who I first spoke to at his Harlan County home back in October 2016. Derek is a bit over six feet tall, he's black, and he has an athlete's build. He has neat curls of black hair rising off the top of his head, and a closely trimmed mustache and goatee. Derek has a lot of plans. He told me he was trying to become a Kentucky State Trooper, but also making plans to move to Texas to work on an oil rig. Just starting off right there, that's like $20-something an hour, and I can't pass that up. When I talked to Derek a month later in November, he still had one plan to find work near home and another plan to move west, but both plans had changed. Now, Derek was following a lead on a lineman job that would have him climbing utility poles, and he had plans to move to California after his birthday in March. I'm from this small town. There's no careers here, and, uh... I feel like if I moved out to California, that's where I might have have a future. You know, I'm 21. You know, I know I'm young, but I'm ready to get out there and do a lot. In the months since, Derek's plans have continued to evolve. But before we get to all that, let's take a step back to meet Derek's family and hear about Derek's plan A, the first time he tried to move away from home. I was raised by my granddad, my grandma, and my mom. Well, I'm just tell the truth. I don't like when my name be announced on the radio. I like to be called Darius Adonis' grandma. Well, she knows me as mama. I'm Derek's mother, Katina, a cow. Biological mother. My dad, he, you know, he, he, he's a cool guy. He just hasn't been in my life. Because his father wasn't around. His grandfather was his father, you know. My junior year, my grandfather passed away. That was like one of the hardest things ever. He didn't accept the death of his granddaddy too well. He he wouldn't want to talk about it. Since my dad passed, it's just like Derek just it's just like, he he changed. Yeah. The summer right after Derek's granddad passed away, Derek became more withdrawn and more focused on a goal that his granddad had pushed him toward, excelling at sports to hopefully earn a college scholarship. I dedicated my whole summer to, you know, working out, getting faster, stronger, bigger, and everything. And, like, you know, I just popped out of nowhere. Derek and I went to visit the field where he played football in high school. Harlan County High School, called Minor Stadium. The stadium has huge metal bleachers and a giant modern scoreboard. It's in a really beautiful spot, a patch of flat land that was blasted out of the wooded hillsides that surround it. When we visited, the leaves were at their most colorful. A gym class was playing flag football, and the sound of gunshots told us someone was out hunting nearby. 
Derek started to get nostalgic, remembering how he used to feel walking onto the field back when he played here in high school. I bled on this field. I cried on this field. Uh, it means everything to me. Um, we walked through here. Everybody was going crazy. And they would start playing a, a song called um, You Never Leave Heart in Love. I'm not a big fan of country music. That's the place where I trace my bloodline. But you know, you got me pumped up like crazy. There I read on a hillside gravestone. I love it. I got defensive player of the year. I think I got four district championships. And I got three uh, regional championships. You know, I dedicated all that for my granddad, you know. If I haven't gotten hurt, I'll be playing for a bowl game right now with uh, D1 College. It was the last game to the regional tournament. My senior year, the running back was running and he got tackled, but he was held up by like two or three people. And as soon as I hit him, my head cocked all the way back and I felt the back of my head touch my back. I broke my neck, I broke my C1, my C2. The doctors, you know, he was just straight to the point. Like, you could have died right there in the field. You know, that bone could have punctured my brain stem right there. And it was just like, literally shut down everything in my whole body. And I'm sitting here like, wow. You know, I got really lucky with that. You know, I'm lucky that I didn't die on the field or be paralyzed right now. I was at a neck brace for four months, but I was still getting college scholarships to play more football. Derek accepted a scholarship to attend the University of the Cumberlands in Williamsburg, Kentucky. It's only two hours from Derek's home in Harlan County, but the college draws students from all across the country, and Derek says he stood out for the way he talked. Fresh out of Harlan County, of course I'm gonna have my country accent. Derek says many of his classmates were surprised that someone who looks like him a clean-cut and fashionably-dressed black man could be from rural Kentucky. They'd be like, oh, where are you from? And I'd say, two hours away in the mountains. And the first thing, he'd be like, are you serious? You don't even look like you're from Kentucky. You look like you're from Georgia or Florida, New York, city places like that. I'm sitting here like, no, man, I'm from Harlan County, Kentucky. That wasn't the only discomfort Derek felt about being a young black man in Williamsburg. Derek says his feelings about the town soured after he and a friend had their car searched by police twice in one week. We gave him the license and everything. He was like, oh, I thought you guys had stuff on y'all this time. I can't read minds, but, you know, seeing a couple black guys together, I just felt like we got profiled from right there. Things on the football field weren't going great either. I played two games, and my neck started bothering me again, so I didn't want to play no more because, you know, I want to be able to walk, so I just say I, I'm just going to give up uh, sports for now and just come back down here. And the whole reason for me, like, leaving college was I had, like, four or five scholarships, but uh, that loan was just, like, over $1,000. I'm still paying it back right now. I still have to pay that back. His first thought was, was we disappointing him not going to school? I told him, I said, look, college not for everybody. It's what you want to do what you feel like you want to do. I mean, our family doesn't, like, force you out. Like, if you want to stay here, you can stay here, but they're going to, like, say that there's more stuff to go out. Go do something. You get your job. If that means getting up and leaving. I don't want him to stick around here, walk these streets, because there's no expanding around here. Mine was forever. I'd rather for him to go find work and be a productive member of society. I'd rather him do that than to stay here and be, and no be miserable. Because I can see it on him already. I want him to go somewhere that he's going to be happy. I got it in my head that I can make it out and actually be something for myself by myself. Derek's not the first person in his family to have that thought. In the next chapter of Derek Akow's Struggle to Stay, we're going to hear more about how the hunt for better work and a better life has affected Derek's family and community for generations. 
In some ways, it seems to be a big advantage for Derek as he tries to move away. From New York, so North Carolina, all the way down to California, you know, I got family all over the place. They always going to be willing to help whatever I need it. But Derek says that being connected to other parts of the country has also created problems in his hometown. The people who move away, they get uh, recruited into a gang. Next thing you know, they come back, and next thing you know, trouble just going to start. Generation after generation, people in Derek's family have felt pressure to move away from home. The struggle to stay is a central part of Derek's family history and the history of his hometown, a little place called Lynch. How do you feel about the name of this town? You know, it don't bother me much. You know, I just wish it was named different because, you know, Lynch and you got lynchings and stuff like that. Lynch was actually named after Thomas Lynch. He was an executive at U.S. Steel, the company that built this coal camp town back in 1917. Today, there are yard signs posted all around Lynch to let everyone know that the town is celebrating 100 years of existence, here at the foot of Kentucky's highest peak, which happens to be named Black Mountain. Black Mountain, living Lynch, in a black community, you know. <laughs> what, can I, like, what can you say to it, you know? I asked Eric if he knew much about his family's history and how they'd come to live in Lynch. My grandma and my mom down here, they don't really don't say much about it. Karita knows more about it. She probably talks about it the most. Derek's talking about his cousin, Karita Brown. Hello, my name is Karita Brown. I am a visiting assistant professor at UNC Chapel Hill. I'm also full-time faculty in the Department of Sociology at University of California at Los Angeles. Karita has done a lot of research about how generations of African Americans have moved in and out of coal towns like Lynch. She's actually writing a book about it. Here's how Derek describes her. She does a lot of interviews around here. Everybody knows who she is. One thing that everybody loves about her is her hair. It's like really poofy and curly. Just beautiful. I love it. That's how I'm trying to get my hair like hers. Big and natural. <laughs> Karita told me she's not surprised that Derek hasn't heard much about how his family first came to Lynch. Memory is a very complicated thing with the African-American experience. One of my mentors, Tony Bogues, calls slavery a historical catastrophe, a shattering of who you are and where you come from. You don't always want to be remembering that. Their lives, their roots, their origin stories started in Kentucky, and their parents weren't necessarily trying to tell them all their horror stories or what they endured to get there. Even though it's not something Derek's talked about much, I think that if you want to understand Derek's struggle to stay, you have to understand that many parts of his struggle are forces that his family has been dealing with for generations. This has been a story of African-American struggle and striving that we can trace through American history because we're always getting kicked out or moved from where we settle down. So now we're going to speed through 100 years of Derek's family history, starting with the origin story. How the hell did all these black folks get to Harlan County, Kentucky? When the mining industry came into eastern Kentucky, we're at the point of world war and the country needs steel. Coal is one of the products to make steel. So the mining industries found themselves with an insatiable need for labor. Mining companies like the one that built and owned Lynch sent labor agents far and wide to recruit coal miners. One place where they recruited was Alabama, where Derek's great-granddad came from. They were in a dire situation in the late 1800s, early 1900s in Alabama, and leaving Alabama was more of an escape. Slavery had technically been abolished, but many African Americans were still trapped doing forced labor in abusive conditions. Some were stuck in unfair farming contracts, and others were arrested, often on flimsy charges, then sold to industries that needed workers. Many of these leased convicts ended up working in coal mines, where about 1 in 20 workers would die each year. It was dangerous to stay in Alabama, but it was also dangerous to leave. Derek's great-granddad used to tell a story about one scary encounter that happened while he was traveling to Kentucky. He was unsure if they were going to kill him right there. Cynthia Harrington remembers how her dad, Derek's great-granddad, used to tell the story. He used to get drunk. 
And he basically told us the same story when he got drunk uh, about how he hoboed, we call it hitchhike, from uh, Alabama because he had heard about the jobs in the mines. He said he was walking and these white men saw him one day and they said, hey, nigga, where you going? So he told them that he was going to Kentucky to get a job. And they said, we heard that niggas can preach. So they said to him, nigga, preach. He said he had to do it because he was a little afraid. And then he said, after he preached, they said, well, we heard niggas like to dance. They said, nigga, dance. And, you know, once he danced and they taunted him some more, they let him go. In Lynch, he started a large family, 14 kids, one of whom is Derek's grandma. There was decent paying work for a while, but then the coal industry hit a bump due to some forces that might sound familiar to people watching today's coal downturn. Coal was losing ground to competition from another fossil fuel, and coal miners were being replaced by fancy new mining machines. When we come to the mid-1940s, as the country is transitioning its dependence from coal to oil, the mining industry began to mechanize heavily. There was not so much of a need for all of that manual labor. As quickly as they pulled these people in, they shut them out. Uh, I know uh, in the case of Lynch, the African-Americans were the first to be cut out of the labor economy. Many folks in Lynch moved away. Harlan County lost 70% of its African-American population between the years of 1940 and 1970. That is an extreme out-migration. Derek's grandma was part of that wave of people who left Lynch. She followed some of her older siblings to New York City. There, she met her husband, Derek's grandpa, who'd come from Trinidad. Then, in the 70s, her husband lost his job, just as the coal industry started to bounce back. Mines in Harlan County were hiring again, and Derek's grandma wanted to get her kids away from the heroin epidemic that had arrived in New York. So, they moved to Lynch. When Derek started getting mad, came back to raise my kids, and I've been here since. Derek's grandma actually worked in the mines too for a year, around 1979. Partly because she wanted to see what it was like, and partly because her husband had told her not to. He always tell me, you ain't going no mine. So I went in there. I worked close to a year on a belt line. And I enjoyed it. It really paid good. But I need to be home. That was my job, being home my kids. This boom, like the last one, turned into a bust. And once again, many folks in Lynch moved away. Among them was Derek's mom, Katina Akal. When the coal mine shut down here, everybody had no choice but to move. I moved off after I graduated high school. I had went to Lexington, went to University of Kentucky, but I, I dropped out after I had Derek. The job I was working in was third shift, and I didn't have anybody to watch him. So I brought him here with my mom. So I was basically in Lexington for about 10 years, but I was always back and forth. And then after... I had my uh, younger son. I decided to come back home. And best decision I ever made. Derek's mom, Katina, got a job at a factory. Then she went back to school and managed to get a job close to home that she loves. I counsel at-risk kids. I felt like this is what I was meant to do. Derek's mom and grandma both found their way back to Lynch, but they were kind of the exception. In the neighborhood we live in, it was somebody in every house. Now we live here, and then there's three houses empty. There's the next house, and there's three houses empty. It is just terrible now. Derek's cousin, Carita Brown, is from one of those branches of the family that didn't move back. She grew up in New York on Long Island, but her family visited Lynch at least once a year, and Carita thought it was a magical place. This was a town that was segregated, so, you know, all I knew was that it was this black world. I thought everyone was black, not only in... Uh, Lynch, but all Appalachia, in my mind, was black. When out-of-town folks would come to visit, Carita and the rest of the family would often end up gathering at the house that Derek lives in with his grandma and his mom. Everybody wants to go there and hang out. The best food is going to be there, the biggest laughs. That house, I think, is in one of the most iconic locations for 
the, the remnants of the black community in Lynch because it is directly across the street from the ballpark. And that park is where everything went down. But what really, I think, makes that house a central location is that it is right behind the Lynch-colored public school. Up until 1963, the schools were racially segregated in Harlan County, and it was the premier black school. And the building is now owned by the Eastern Kentucky Social Club. So that building has so much symbolic meaning to the black community, and it's still a gathering place. Because the social club is so symbolic, it has sometimes become a target. Derek remembers a story his granddad used to tell him about an event that's something of a town legend. Forty-something years ago, a group of KKK people was going to try to tear that place down or something like that. My granddad told me that everybody was sitting there ready on, on, on their houses, guns out, you know, loaded up, ready for them to show up. And uh, I could just picture my granddad just pointing his gun, just ready for something to happen. But you know what? They never showed up, you know, so... I believe that's some racist people around here, but I don't believe that they're brave enough to show up in Lynch, you know, because Lynch has a history, you know. You know, the people down here don't play around, you know. In a way, his home's reputation for violence has made Derek feel safer, but the reputation alone hasn't always been enough to keep Derek safe. It was 2015. I went to a, a, a house party. My girlfriend at the time, she led, she walked up a hill. It was away from the party. And I was following right behind her, and there was this guy jogging behind me, just screaming the N-word like crazy. One of them had a knife on him, and like, like he flicked that knife out. He was just sitting there holding it, just looking at me. My life flashed before my eyes. I was like, well, these guys are going to probably try to kill me or something, so I'm probably going to have to fight for my life. And I looked at my girlfriend, my girlfriend was just sitting there just shaking. She didn't know what to do. So I was just like, you know, I was just ready to go. The first thing I'd done, you know, it was swung on the dude that had the knife first. Boom, knocked him out, first hit. The other dude, he punched me, and I didn't even feel it. Boom, knocked him out. And so, you know, the guy with the knife just kept on going after him. You know, started beating him half to death, you know, going crazy, beating up these two dudes. You know, it looked like I killed him, you know, two bodies on the ground. That's what it looked like. I remember I came home, it was like 7 o'clock in the morning. I had a blue hoodie on, and I had blood all over my hoodie, my pants, the white part of my shoes, and all around here was covered in blood. Later on that day, uh, got a phone call, you know, from the cops, and it was like, man, you probably had to go to jail for assault or almost attempted murder because that guy that had that knife apparently had a really bad concussion. I told him the full story. I was like, listen, dude, he had a knife on him, so I'm fighting for my life. You know, he could have stabbed me in my neck or something. You know, I wouldn't be here, you know. I told the cops about that stuff, and then they dropped the charges on me. They asked me if I'm going to press charges on them. I said, you know, I felt bad for, you know, for what I did. The big talk in town was like, oh, man, Derek about killed a dude. That was, like, the biggest talk for, like, almost, like, three months, you know. And usually I didn't, like, you know, step out the house, you know. You know, if I had to fight, that I have to. But it's just I was so embarrassed of, like, what I'd done to that man. And I broke his jaw in two different places and fractured his skull with the kick that I gave him. And, like, what's crazy about it was, I like, two months after that, you know, I went to another house party and he was up there. And uh, he had scars all over his face. He had one scar on his forehead. And he came up to me and he was like, man, I'm so sorry for what happened. I was drunk. You really beat me up and you made me realize I don't need to be doing that. I said, I forgive you. Do you guys forgive me? And he was like, yeah. He was just sitting there talking to me and everything. He tried to hug up on me and everything, you know. And I gave him a hug back, you know, just be friendly. Me and those guys were cool now, so so everything's cool. I guess I'm wondering if that experience pushed you more towards wanting to leave it all or, like, made you less comfortable with this area. I mean, uh, no. I mean, it can happen anywhere. You know, it's just crazy. You know, to sit here and think about, you know, anywhere it can happen, you know, anywhere. I was so friendly with everybody around here, you know. I didn't think it would, it would happen towards me, but it did. It didn't push me to move, but it did push me to start looking somewhere else. Looking turned into planning, and then one day, 
planning turned into action. You know, my friends down here, they look at Lexington as the city to move to. For me, I'm looking past that, you know. I'm looking to go, you know, way farther than that. And, you know, if I have to go to the other side of the nation to do so, then I will. Derek has a particular place in mind, and it's reflected in the music he listens to. There's a song called Hollywood Dreams by Post Malone. You ever heard that? So that's like one of my favorite songs. Hollywood Dreams. It's late 2016, and Derek wants to make his way to Los Angeles, California. Getting there is expensive, and Derek hasn't had luck finding anything close to a full-time job this year. But he's still found ways to save up some money. I sold some of my clothes, sold some shoes. I sold a lot of electronics. I worked on computers for a little bit. Uh, I cut hair, part-time barber, basically. You know, I saved up for almost a year and a half. And uh, most people, especially my family, they didn't know that I had almost like $2,000, you know, saved up in a uh, shoebox under my bed that nobody didn't know. Day before of me going to California, I was just going and say all over the house, cleaning my stuff, cleaning my shoes. You know, I even went out to wash the car. I didn't even sleep that night because I was so excited. The only thing I was on my mind was just going straight to California. The next morning, Derek told his family he was leaving, but he didn't say how far he was going or for how long. I walked downstairs, had my bags and stuff, and uh, my family didn't think I was going to California. Um, I had a couple friends take me to Knoxville so I can catch my bus. People say, that, oh, I'm crazy for not flying, you know, but, you know, it was just bragging rights, you know, I've been all over the place, you know. Rode a bus to Memphis and got on the train to uh, Little Rock, Arkansas. Took a train all the way down to Denver, Colorado. Got on another bus, so I go straight there. That was really breathtaking, especially going through Arizona. You know, I've seen a lot of land that I've never seen before, a lot of canyons. All through there was just beautiful. As soon as I stepped foot in California, I didn't believe it because everything down there is just so big. Like, it took me by surprise, you know. Like, I'm actually in Los Angeles, California. Derek met up with two close friends he met the year he was in college, Jessica and Vince. Jessica is from California and lives near Los Angeles, making good money as a wrestling coach. Vince is from a small town in Georgia. He and Derek have been talking for months, trying to figure out where they can move to find more opportunity. Moving to California was Vince's idea. The point of this trip is to spend a couple weeks scouting for jobs and houses so that Derek and Vince can be ready when they decide to make the big move. If it wasn't for uh, Jessica and Vince, I wouldn't have found my way to Los Angeles, honestly. I'll probably stay in Harlan County. I'll be in Harlan County forever. Derek's friends picked him up, and straight away they drove up to the top of a mountain. It was a lot higher than the mountains Derek knew back home, and Derek says that what he saw up on top made it feel like these mountains held a whole new world of possibilities. It was us, and there was a car on top of the mountain blasting music. There was a guy that walked out, and he had a stick, and he took a lighter and light the ends up and would start twirling it around. I told Vince, I was like, Vince, I'm, I'm going to need some footage. And he was like, I, he's like, I got you. <laughs> He was flipping around his neck and everything, you know, doing cartwheels, all sorts of stuff like that. Then he came up to us and he was like, hey, do you guys want to hold the stick? You know, I couldn't twirl it for nothing. You know, I was so terrified I was going to burn myself. I'm there for like a good two hours. I'm already seeing some crazy stuff already. I left on December 28th and got there on the 29th, two days before New Year's. and I. It took me all over the place, uh, Malibu, Pasadena, Beverly Hills. I could just say I've been all over Los Angeles. I just felt like this is just, you know, a new beginning, spending a New Year's in California, you know, ready to explore the world. Because, you know, I already explored basically the nation already. At this point, Derek's family and almost everyone else back home still had no idea that Derek was in California. 
Derek had kept the trip a secret, but then the moment came where he decided to tell the world through social media. That's what I wanted to do was just surprise people. As soon as I posted a picture of me in California, I had like a hundred something Snapchats and text messages. One of the people who saw that post was his cousin, Karita Brown. I recently moved to Los Angeles, California because I joined the faculty at UCLA. Quick reminder, Karita Brown, in addition to being Derek's cousin, is a sociologist who has done a lot of research on African-American migration in and out of the Appalachian coal fields. Last time, she helped tell Derek's family history. So I'm just moving into my house in Los Angeles. I mean, just picked up the keys. And I look on my Facebook page, and I see a post from Derek. He's standing overlooking the San Gabriel Valley at sunset, and he has this little like paragraph going on about how he's in California looking at this beautiful view, blah, blah, blah. He didn't even say anything to me. So I inboxed him and said, hey, cousin, you know I'm here. Come anytime. And the next day, Derek's at my house. Derek seems to really look up to Karita. Karita, she does a lot. You know, she's been literally all over the world. I want to be on the same level as Karita is. I always traveling somewhere, you know. I want to explore, you know, the world. Karita says she really appreciated getting to spend time with Derek. You know, I moved by myself. I don't have family out there. And what a joy it was to host my cousin. Derek doesn't talk much. So that, that's a part of his personality. He's a close-to-the-best person. He listens way more than he talks. In fact, I heard Derek talk more in the four or five days that he stayed with me in California than I've heard him talk in his whole life. Karita told me that's not the only change she saw in Derek when he visited. I remember a year or two prior to him coming to California, Derek saying, I ain't never leaving the mountains. I'm staying right here. All that went out the window while we were sitting in my living room in California. He sounded like he really wanted to come to California and make roots permanently. Derek told me he felt more at home in Los Angeles than he'd expected. I didn't have homesick because all I have to see is some mountains. I was expecting nothing but flat land all over the place. It was just, you know, a whole lot bigger mountains. Karita says she was glad to give Derek some support and wants to keep helping him out. All I wanted him to know was that if and when he makes that leap, I'll do everything that I can do in my power to make sure that he can reach for his dreams. Back home, Derek's mom, Katina Akal, was glad that Derek had Karita to turn to. I feel a little bit better knowing Karita's out there. But remember, Derek had kept his trip a secret. He did not tell us he was going. Those two weeks he was gone, I was a nervous wreck the whole time. I could not sleep. Derek's mom found out that he was in California, not from Derek, but from a friend she bumped into at the store, whose son is one of Derek's friends. She go, so how you feel about Derek in California? And I went, what? When Derek got home, after another long journey by bus and train, he and his mom had to talk. First, I was just happy that he came back. As I got over that, then I was mad. <laughs> I was mad. And I was like, don't you ever do that again. And I asked, why did you not tell us that you was going? And he said, I didn't want you all to talk me out of it or say I couldn't go. I'm not going to talk you out of it, you know, because you're 21. I can't tell you where you can and can't go. I said, you could have gave me a heads up because I hate finding out from other people. Derek tells me he and his mom have worked some things out. And he says part of why he came back was to be able to spend some more time with her as well as his grandma and his little brother. You know, everybody's asking me, why did you come back? You know, I was going to spend time with my family and friends. There's one other thing Derek says he needs to do before he makes the big move to California. I plan on finding a good job around here so I can pick up some good money. I'll be leaving in the summer for June 12th. Hopefully, you know, everything will work out, which it will. You know, we already got everything set up. All I got to do is just get some money, get a plane ticket, and I'm already there. Things don't work out quite how Derek hoped. In the next chapter, you'll hear how Derek has struggled to find work in Harlan County. He just kept on telling me, oh, uh, come back another day. And I've done it at least a good, like, four or five times. But as soon as somebody else, you know, as a, as a different race is going there, he has a moment just like that. Will Derek find work and be able to move away? Find out in the final chapter of Derek Acow's Struggle to Stay.
This is Mountain Talk here on 88.7 WMMT in Whitesburg, Kentucky. I'm Rachel Geringer. We've been listening to Derek Akal's Struggle to Stay, a series produced by WMMT's Benny Becker for Inside Appalachia. Before we get to the conclusion of Derek's story, we're going to hear an excerpt from a 2016 interview with sociologist Carita Brown. Brown is a professor of sociology at UCLA and Derek Akal's cousin. Brown conducted an oral history project called the Eastern Kentucky African American Migration Project, which documents the generations of African Americans' migration into and out of Eastern Kentucky. She joined Teresa Osborne of the Appalachian Program at Southeast Kentucky Community and Technical College and Phyllis Sizemore of the Kentucky Coal Museum for an interview for their bi-weekly WMMT show, History Alive. Brown goes into detail about the processes through which black men from Alabama were recruited to work in the coal mines of Kentucky in the early 20th century. So if you actually talk to anyone who just started you out down in Alabama and just moved you right on up into Kentucky with yes. them. Just uh, So have you heard about the labor agent named Limehouse? I've asked you about him before, mm-hmm. too. Yeah. So, you know, he was, from what I can kind of piece together archivally, he was primarily bringing black folks from Alabama to lynch on behalf of U.S. Steel in the early days, in the the 20s, 30s, and it seems like he kind of fell off in the early 40s. So there are one, two, two participants who who are old enough to have come to lynch with Limehouse. Mr. Gene Austin, he was 13 years old at the time, and his father had come over first from Alabama to Lynch, got a job with U.S. Steel, and then sent for his mother and himself. And then also Mr. William Henry Morrow, who still lives in number five. He's 90-something years old. And he, too, as a young, I think he was a preteen, came from Alabama with Limehouse to Lynch and lied about his age and got a job in the mines. So there are those gems where uh, folks have had firsthand experience with that with the full migration. And then the other types of story, which are, which are more common in my body of oral histories, are lore, which I, I love the lore because it's mm-hmm. the story of, I'll ask the question, where were your mother and father born? And they'll say someplace in Alabama, invariably. And then I'll ask them to walk me through individually. Can you tell me what your father told me, told you about how he got to Benham. How did how how do you get from Bessemer, Alabama, or Emsley, Alabama, to the top of a mountain in a in a in a state that's not even a you know contiguous, right? This mm-hmm. is not an easy leap of the mm-hmm. imagination, especially coming from an intense Jim Crow segregated Deep South sharecropping context. It's not natural to say, oh, I'm gonna go be a coal miner in East Kentucky. And those stories are fascinating because the participants too are trying to piece together, you know, I really don't know for sure, but daddy would say when he would get drunk, you know, uh, on the weekends, he would tell the story over and over about how he, you know, what it was like for him hoboing to get here or how Limehouse brought him or how he had to sneak in a coffin to get out of out of Alabama. They had to get out of these sharecropping agreements, sometimes out of convict labor situations. So it wasn't always an easy migration. It was more of an escape. And I think that that lore, even if we can't stamp it as factual truth, those stories that emerge that have some sort of pattern and consistency to them are really special and important. And, and I write about that a lot too. A coffin? A coffin. Who's going to check a coffin? Yeah, yeah. I've heard of some people having to be, uh, Limehouse would bring in sugarcane and watermelon, so some folks would hide under the fruit if they felt like they couldn't leave freely from Alabama. Some, some folks, like my grandparents, my grandfathers, they hoboed 
where you just hop on a train that's freighting mm-hmm. some to Kentucky. So there are all these types of stories. And then you have, as these coal towns started to populate, now you have networks. So these early comers are inviting their brothers and uncles and you know what have you to come get a job in the mines. And then they're sending for their wives and all of that. So we see the process of chain migration start to occur. But those early stories are just fascinating. And then you have this next generation, these coal miner sons and daughters who all migrate out. You know, they're not here anymore. <laughs> so, so the bulk of my research has been uh, tracing that story. So I've traveled across the country for the last three years. Just, I think I've hit over, I, it's over, I've hit over 30 cities. Everywhere from San Jose, California to Newington, Connecticut, and in between. But going to their homes and figuring out, okay, I understand that there was no job for you here and you felt like you had to move. But how did you choose, you know, Newington, Connecticut? Mm -hmm. How does one end up in Los Angeles from Eastern Kentucky? Why Cleveland? Why Detroit? And then that story, when that story starts to unfold, the individual stories are are important and and worthy on their own. But what I'm really uh, keen about is the body, when you start getting a city history that comes together because they start telling you about the political structure of Cleveland at the time or what companies were recruiting folks directly to come to get jobs or whatnot and what was going on with the civil rights movement at that time and hearing about how the Great Migration unfolded on this landscape of uh, political, occupational, economic change in this country, it becomes not just a story of, a local story of migration, this is a a slice of American history that uh, is broad and really uh, speaks to everybody. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, you said they left Alabama because of the the Jim Crow laws and, and that overwhelming sense of containment. I'm going to go with that word. Mm-hmm. When they came here, was it was it that much different? Were, did they feel like they had entered a new, different, wonderful, better place, or did they get some more of the same? I think it's a mixed bag, right? So if we if we contextualize Alabama in from 1880 to 1920 that's uh, marked the era of lynching mm-hmm. you know that's that yeah. post reconstruction era where it was not uncommon for you to know someone firsthand who them or their family member had encountered a lynching so that is an act of terror that mm-hmm. just permeates into your whole psyche. But then also Alabama was the last state in the South to abolish the convict leasing system. So up until 1920, they're relying heavily on convict labor to generate state revenue. So what are they doing? They're saying any black man walking down the street during work hours who's not seeming to be doing anything, that's vagrancy. And we can put him in jail for 30 days, 90 days. While in jail for those 90 days, if they have a minor infraction, oh, we're going to add on another X amount of days to your sentence. And you literally have this, the the historian Douglas Blackman wrote that book, Slavery of Another Name. Mm -hmm. He's talking about this convict leasing system where they're getting free labor and making up fake crimes, basically just the crime of blackness. So there's this, that's the context in which they're coming out of and sharecropping where you're working your behind off from can't to can't. That's what my grandpa would say. You can't see when you get up and start working and you can't see when you're done because it's from sunrise to, to sunset. And at the end of the year, when it's time to tally up, who's the accountant? The white plantation owner who's entered this contract with you who can say, uh, sorry, you didn't meet the standards of the agreement. In fact, you owe me this year. You don't get paid anything. And because you owe me a debt, now you can't leave this land. You have to work off what you owe. So there are all these systems of re-enslavement. That's the context in which 
these folks migrated out of here to Eastern Kentucky. So I will say that there's this, I think, moving the needle closer towards this idea of citizenship. There was something here for that generation in which men could earn a living wage and receive that from a, an employer. Having a house, right? And for the most part, these men's wives were homemakers. They did not have to do domestic work, which was very common in that era. So these, their children got to grow up with their mothers in the home and not watching them take subservient positions in the community and being, you know, subjected to some of the same context. But let's let's be honest, Kentucky was a, is a border state. The Jim Crow codes were embedded into the laws here and into the hearts and minds of society. So mm-hmm. like any place in America, there were uh, a tense race relations here. This was a prejudice environment. And so they dealt with that, but I think in a different way in which at least for that first generation who came out of that Alabama context, there was some sense of liberty and emancipation that that was here for them in Eastern Kentucky, where the migration provided that. I think I think I can pretty much say that across the board for folks. And then also the schools become very, very important. Although the schools were segregated, I can speak for at least Benham uh, Colored School and Lynch Colored School were the flagship black schools in Eastern Kentucky in terms of resources. All of the teachers had college degrees and they received for a separate and unequal education a top-notch, you know, the, the, the cream of the crap, right? Mm-hmm. So, But that school allowed them to be prepared for entering a broadened occupational structure a generation later. So it, being able to know that you could provide that for your children, this freedom that was never a possibility for their parents, I think was also something that generated a, a very palpable sense of pride that screams out of these oral history interviews for this Black community. Finally, Benny Becker brings us the conclusion to Derek's story. Derek first got the idea to move out west when he heard that there were jobs working on oil rigs. The oil industry is like the coal mines down here, but the only thing that's different is that the oil rigs and stuff are like going crazy. Derek visited California over New Year's, and once he got there, he learned about other jobs he could get in the energy industry. The solar job in California, you start out, you know, $23 an hour. You know, that is so much money. He also learned about job opportunities in the world of fashion. I can get down with a modeling job down there and make as much money as a coal miner easily. I met up with Derek in January, soon after he came back from California. I went to the house he was living in with his mom, grandma, and little brother. It was cold outside, so we sat in the living room on a big, cozy couch. Derek told me that visiting California had made him even more committed to finding a way to move there. What kind of timeline are you thinking for trying to actually make the move? Um, I'm going to be leaving in the summer before June 12th. All you got to do is just get some money, get a plane ticket, and I'm already there. The next time I met up with Derek, the weather had warmed up, so we sat outside. It's March 21st, 2017. Uh, We are on my front porch in Lynch, Kentucky. At that time, he said he was still on track to move in June. Two and a half more months and I'm already out of here. But he still hadn't saved enough money for his move out west. He was having a hard time finding work in Harlan County. Literally just going out to job, going out to job, going out to job, putting applications everywhere. They wouldn't pick you up anywhere. Derek did find one way to earn a little income. He has his uncle's pair of hair clippers, and he's learned how to use them. I got a booming business right now, cutting people's hair. Two and a half months later, I sat down again with Derek on his front porch in Lynch. Today would be the day that I'll be going to California right now. Derek told me he needed to find some better paying work. He'd done another big round of job applications and even gotten a new buzz cut in hopes that it would help him get hired. 
At one point, Derek happened to look at a picture of himself from before he cut off his hair, and he told me that just looking at it made him sad. Man, I'm telling you, every time I see my long hair, I just miss my hair even more. Even with short hair, Derek still couldn't find any steady work. But he stayed hopeful, and he made the most of a beautiful summer. He wasn't making much money, but he had time to spend with his family and to enjoy the natural beauty of Harlan County. Like, all these mountains all the way around here, like, I've literally been all over these mountains, fishing, snake hunting. That's really what I spend most of my time at, is on uh, Black Mountain. The top of Black Mountain, just above Lynch, is the highest point in Kentucky. The next time I visited Derek, that's where we went. My name is Derek Aiko. It's Tuesday, July 11th, and we are on top of Black Mountain. And this is a memorial right here to let you know that you're 4,139 feet. You can see pretty far into Virginia from the overlook, and most of the view is forested ridgelines. But there's one big area that dominates the view and looks more like a moonscape. It's a mountaintop removal site. Looking over where that strip mine is at, you know, even though it killed that mountain, you know, it's still, you know, it's still beautiful to me. For Derek, part of the beauty is in the possibility he sees in the big flat area that coal mining left behind. They put some wind fields up in these mountains like that, I'm telling you. Then I think business would be booming. Literally just covered out up right there with just wind or solar. If something like that were to happen, would you consider coming back if there were suddenly all these jobs in wind and solar here? Yeah, most definitely, yeah. They have all that stuff right there, yeah, most definitely. But that's not what's happening. All the kids that I grew up with, you know, we, you know, we all leave because there's no jobs here. But without coal, you know, the town is just going to be a ghost town. I wonder, like, if you have feelings about if any of that makes it more important for, for people to hear your voice or how you feel about your voice and your story fitting into all of the kinds of voices and stories that end up out there on the media. I feel like, like I'm representing the people that's all like all around here. You know, that want to say what they're going through, but they can't say it because they have no way of saying it, you know. I recorded this interview in July, and by this point, Derek had given up on finding a job in Harlan County. He'd moved on to another backup plan. Around here, there's just nothing here, so I'm just going to pack up and go to Georgia. Derek has family and friends who've moved from Lynch to the Atlanta area. He has an aunt who offered to let him stay at her house and help him get a job nearby so that he could save the money he needs to move to California. This week will be my last week, you know, down here. But I'm going to be visiting like crazy, though, because I'm, I'm a really big mama's and grandma's boy. And I love my brother to death, so I can't leave him. The next few months, Derek kept busy in Atlanta, working and saving money. I caught up with him by phone in early November, about 10 months after he started trying to save money to move out west. Uh, hello? Hey, Derek? Yes. Hey, How you doing? Doing all right. How are you? How's it going? Uh, it's been crazy. I'll tell you that. Derek's been in Georgia for about two months. He's been living outside Atlanta with his aunt, working for a power company, and hanging out with Vince, the friend he's planning to move to California with. Derek tells me things had been going pretty smoothly until this last week. That's when he learned that his boss had been pocketing some of the money he was supposed to have gotten. He quit that job, but he says he's already got leads for a new job and he's still planning to move to California. Oh yeah, well, most definitely. I'm going to be leaving here pretty soon, probably like in January or February. What I'm basically doing is just working to get my ticket and everything and to get a car. Even though my boss owes me money and everything, which I'm going to get, you know, I've been saving up quite a bit of money, so I've been doing good with that. Derek tells me the response he's gotten from people hearing his story has also helped him to feel good about how things are going. There's been a lot of people that message me and talking about how much I inspired them. It's people that I don't even know, and they're telling me about their situations and stuff like that, what they want to do. It's like the people that are scared to do something message me, who are scared to go out their comfort zone. Is there something you'd want to say in your own voice to people out there listening? Um, I was just tell them to never give up, never give up on your dreams, because I'm still on my dreams, and I'm not far from them. You just got to have the patience to chase your dreams, because it's not going to always gonna come to you just as quick. And like I say, always have a couple plans with you, because there's always going to be some situations that's going to switch up your dreams. 
That's it for this episode of Mountain Talk, featuring the story of Derek Akal's struggle to stay, produced by WMMT's Benny Becker for Inside Appalachia. This is the second episode in our month-long series celebrating Black history's current realities and futures in the Appalachian region and beyond, every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern. Tune in next week to hear stories of young organizers working to build a racial justice movement in the region. The opening song and the song you're hearing now come from the June Apple recording of Earl Gilmore's album, From the Depths of My Soul. Earl Gilmore was born in North Carolina in 1924. His family moved to Clinchco, Virginia, in Dickinson County, so his father could work in the coal mines when Earl was two. He was a lifelong resident of Dickinson County and passed away in 2000. Other music on this episode comes from Amethyst Kia, Pigmeat Jarrett, Post Malone, Marissa Anderson, Black Mill, James and Emma Meadows, and Brad Paisley's version of Daryl Scott's song, You'll Never Leave Harlan Alive, which was recorded by Malik Simmons at a Harlan County High football game. If you'd like to listen to this or past episodes of Mountain Talk again, you can find them on our website, www.wmmt.org or download them on your phone as a podcast. I've been your host, Rachel Geringer, and from all of us at WMMT, thanks for listening to Real People Radio. Never goodbye.